Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Now, different gods had their allotments in different places which they set in order. Hephaestus and Athena, who were brother and sister and sprang from the same father, having a common nature and being united also in the love of philosophy and art, both obtained as their common portion this land, which was naturally adapted for wisdom and virtue, and there they implanted brave children of the soil and put into their minds the order of government— Their names are preserved, but their actions have disappeared by reason of the destruction of those who received the tradition, and the lapse of ages. For when there were any survivors, as I have already said, they were men who dwelt in the mountains, and they were ignorant of the art of writing, and had heard only the names of the chiefs of the land, but very little about their actions. Oh, hi, hello, welcome. 
This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv. Back again in this special series of episodes to talk about the concept that is, quite importantly and quite specifically, not a myth, and not really a story either, and definitely not history, Atlantis. And yet it is a fascinating thing, not necessarily for the story itself or its general point, but for everything surrounding it. Everything it has become and all the ways it is completely misunderstood. And that is not to suggest that I am some special person for knowing the truth. Far from it. Like I said last week, like most of you, I was led to believe that Atlantis was, at least in part, a myth. We all thought it was a myth, right? Or a story meant to be believed, or maybe even something the ancient Greeks believed to be historical, like some of those odder moments in Herodotus. Growing up in the 20th and 21st centuries, everything in pop culture and beyond suggests that Atlantis is, at the very least, a Greek myth, or maybe even more. Maybe you grew up believing it really is a story of a lost city, or even just could possibly be a lost city. All because, well, we think it's a myth, and maybe, like Troy, it was a myth based in some vague sense of reality, right? Alas, that is simply not the case with Plato's Atlantis. It is not a myth, and today's episode is devoted to that, or rather, a deeper understanding of what Plato was trying to do and why that means it is not a myth, nor history, nor ever believed to be history, even by Plato. And frankly, all of that is totally enthralling in itself. Trust me. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we get into the why of it all... Why did Plato write this story of Atlantis? Let's recap last week, because this idea of Atlantis, or rather the notion as it appears in both the Timaeus and the Critias dialogues, is incredibly complex, and I threw a hell of a lot of information at you in last week's episode. Fascinating, weird, and bizarre information? Absolutely. But there was a lot of it all the same, so let's recap. The story of Atlantis appears exclusively in Plato's dialogues. The Timaeus briefly, and the Critias primarily. The majority of the Timaeus is used to speak of the origins of humanity and various existential-style philosophical musings, with a brief teaser of introduction of Atlantis. But the teaser is important because it conveys some of the information that's lost or unfinished in the Critias. It's in the Timaeus that we learn that Atlantis and Athens went to war, and that Athens prevailed, and that in the end, the Atlanteans were punished by the gods who sent an earthquake, sending the island of Atlantis and the warriors of Athens into the depths of the sea, apparently in a spot that became so thick with mud that it was then made impassable. The Critias, meanwhile, contains the details, the description of this ancient Athens that existed at the same time, and all the details of the island of Atlantis. Between the two dialogues, this is all there is from the ancient world when it comes to Atlantis. Critias tells us of this island kingdom from 9,000 years before Plato's time, an enormous island, bigger than Asia and North Africa combined, that sat just beyond the Pillars of Heracles, the Strait of Gibraltar, and ruled a region next to Athens, southern Europe up to Italy, and North Africa up to Egypt. Plato, through Critias, prioritizes talking about a prehistoric Athens first, the version of which, he says, existed 9,000 years before Plato's time, yet coincidentally resembles a Platonic ideal of classical Athens. This Athens had everything it could possibly need. Its people were perfect and amazing and brilliant, we're told, and the city ruled itself via the people rather than by kings. It is, in essence, an examination of Plato's theory of an ideal society. They 
pointedly do not have kings or rulers of any kind, whereas Atlantis had 10 kings. This is directly related to the time period Plato lived in and what came before him, where kings and kingdoms were looked down upon in favor of what will be a short-lived democracy in Athens. That is an oversimplification, but basically they did not like kings. Ask any Greek tragedy. Plato, meanwhile, in the Republic, did a lot of theorizing about so-called philosopher kings, but these aren't present in his somewhat revised ideal society in the Critias. He seems to have decided that kings, generally, are a no-go. They're linked to tyrants because, well, that's where the word came from as Athens went through a period of tyrannical kings. The word tyrannos is one of the ancient Greek words for king. This Platonic Athens is praised for its perfection, essentially, and also its size. There are 20,000 people and they keep it that way, which is where the touch of eugenics comes in. A perfect man, Plato was not. Meanwhile, Plato, through Critias, moved on to Atlantis with some epic mythological backstory that Critias tells of, but it isn't really relevant. The key bits are that Poseidon is much more involved than Athena and Hephaestus were with Athens, and ultimately Atlantis has ten kings with Poseidon's own blood, who start out good and virtuous, though they have absolute power, before they eventually intermix too much with humanity and descend into hubris and impiety. Atlantis made the gods angry, and Athens did not. So when they went to war, Atlantis was defeated by Athens, and Atlantis was lost to the sea. To a muddy mess in the sea, impassable from that point on. But sadly, the details of that last bit are lost. Fortunately, though, there's enough preamble to the conflict in both dialogues that we know they went to war. Even though Athens had a much smaller population, they won. And the gods punished Atlantis for its hubris and tyranny by sending an earthquake that sent the city plunging into the sea. And, we're told, all of this was later learned by Egyptian priests who told the Athenian Solon, who told Critias's grandfather, who told Critias, who then told it during this discussion with Timaeus, Socrates, and some guy named Hermocrates. Which was all an invention by Plato. Whew, yep, wild ride indeed. This is episode 151, Deconstructing Atlantis. What makes a myth? Plato's Allegorical Atlantis. Atlantis was not a myth, nor was it history, nor was it anything beyond a notion invented by Plato to prove a philosophical theory. I'm getting that out of the way early and repetitively, because like I said last week, as much as I would love to entertain the idea with you all, unfortunately, it's gone too far past the realm of a fun idea to entertain. Today's episode is all about the fascinating ways in which we know it isn't a myth, or history, because frankly, I find those things fascinating enough, and I know you will too. It's interesting, the evidence we have, or rather lack, in contrast with the generally accepted beliefs of those whose only frame of reference is the modern idea of Atlantis, both, both from pop culture and beyond. I count myself among that group, at least before January of last year when I started digging. What I'm going to share with you all today won't convince any of the conspiracy theorists who want to believe in Atlantis. This series isn't for them. You can all stay away. It's for people like me who just didn't know. 
When I found out that everything I thought I knew about Atlantis was nonsense and that the only real ancient source was Play-Doh, my mind was sufficiently blown, and now I want to share it with you. So first things first, between today's opening and last week's episode, I've said quite often that Plato's story of Atlantis as it exists in the Critias is not a myth. But why is it not a myth? It may not have the same language style as the myths we're used to, but it talks about Athena and Hephaestus and Poseidon and a mystical world of old, so why does that alone not make it a myth? This is a good and important question, because there is a distinction here. A myth is defined as a traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining some natural or social phenomenon, and typically involving supernatural beings or events. The key word there is traditional, and that is precisely where Plato's story of Atlantis fails the test of whether or not it is a myth. It fits the other characteristics. It is purporting to explain a natural phenomenon. It is purporting to tell the story of the history of the Athenian people. And it is purporting to involve supernatural beings, the gods themselves. But it is not traditional. It's the difference between a Marvel movie and Homer's Odyssey. They've got similar characteristics, but only one is a myth. Myths of ancient Greece are stories that began as an oral tradition, songs sung of by traveling bards traversing the Greek world. The stories were told all around, changing and evolving and being adjusted for audience before they were finally written down into versions that survive today. This happened over many hundreds of years. That's why we have variations and chronological messes. We have stories of the same heroes from different regions or varying tales of origins. That's why so often I'm talking to you all about different variations, different sources, and what those sources do and do not say about certain characters. It's why we have the Iliad, but we don't have many of the stories that surrounded it, because they're from different time periods and some survived while others didn't. That myths are traditional stories used to explain people, natural histories, and beyond is exactly why I love mythology as much as I do, and why you all enjoy listening to my retellings of mythology. The myths of ancient Greece weave themselves together over a mythological time period, though not a perfect one as we all well know. Heracles, though, comes before the Trojan War. We know that stories of him existed before it because in the Iliad itself he is referenced as having existed in the past. The Homera came to Aphrodite tells of how she gave birth to Aeneas, the prince of Troy. It doesn't matter which of these was written first, just that these two distinct sources talk to each other. The story of Agamemnon, Clytemnestra, and their children spans both the Iliad, the Odyssey, and all three of the tragedians. Everyone talked about it. Details like these are both what makes these stories traditional myths of ancient Greece and what makes Atlantis simply not. It doesn't talk to any other myths. It isn't weaving in any characters beyond the gods. It isn't referencing anything that happened or would happen in myths that we know of. And in no traditional myths is it, or anything like it, ever mentioned. There are no mentions of Atlantis before Plato, not in Greece or Egypt. If one is meant to believe that these Egyptian priests who spoke to Solon knew the story of Atlantis, why would there be zero reference to it in Egypt? 
And why did Solon never tell anyone? If he wrote it down, as Plato says in his dialogue, why did no one read it and mention it to someone anywhere? <laughs> Personally, if I'd spoken with some Egyptian priests who had a story not only of a lost island, but more importantly, a story of my city, Athens, so great and powerful and virtuous 9,000 years ago, I would tell someone I would write it down. There would be some surviving evidence either in original sources or someone mentioning the thing they heard. Think of it like the epic cycle. We know there were works devoted to the story before the Iliad and after. We know there was the Cypria and the Little Iliad. And beyond that, we know there was an epic cycle devoted to Thebes. We don't know this because of the works themselves. We know this because people quoted those works later and they cited their sources. So we know their sources existed. Were Atlantis ever meant to be a true story, at least one other reference beyond a fictional allegory invented by Plato would exist. Or if not that, then a single reference would be found in visual representation. Like, say, the pottery we have that shows Ajax and Achilles playing a game of dice while Athena watches over. There are multiple examples of this in pottery, but not in any surviving text. Or, alternatively, we have the Amazonomachy itself. The war with the Amazons was absolutely a Greek myth, though we have little to no surviving text sources for it from the Greek world. We know it was an important myth because it was depicted everywhere. <laughs> on pottery and wall paintings and even on the Parthenon itself. Yet no full detailed text source telling the story exists from that time. Were Atlantis meant to be believed to be history or even myth, there would be visual representations of it. That's true simply because there would be a reference to such a notable myth, were it a myth, but even more so because Athens was so, so high on themselves, they would have absolutely taken the opportunity to show off an advanced Athens from 9,000 years before. They would have leapt at the chance, were it a myth or believed to be myth or history, to scream from the rooftops that they were an incredible city long, long, long before even the story of the Iliad. Honestly, they would have put it everywhere. <laughs> they would not have been able to shut up about it. Theseus is the perfect example of Athens' pride. He's an awful guy, but they still raised him up like a god because he was their hero. Athens loved to look good. You can see it in countless Greek plays, and the fact that much of what we know about daily life in ancient Greece is because Athens kept records. We know what went down in Athens. You should see the things they put on pottery. Drinking games and sex parties and people just chilling out, living their lives. If nothing from the story of Atlantis made the cut, it really says something. That's what makes it so different from myths, this story of Atlantis, but also quite specifically what makes it different from a place like Troy, where we not only have the Iliad and the Odyssey and fragments of other epics, but we have endless visual representation. And yet still, Atlantis is often compared to Troy. Let's talk about Troy. Troy is often used as a comparison for why maybe Atlantis is something to be found. We found Troy, so why not? There's a few issues at hand here. First, there is what I've just gone over, that the stories around Troy are myths, whereas Atlantis is not, for all of those reasons I laid out. 
Still, I understand the desire to draw a line between them. They're both these epic-sounding ancient places destroyed by war or natural disaster, or both, lost to a mythical kind of history. Troy's mythology takes place in the Bronze Age, when we know that there were many great civilizations in the Mediterranean, including on that eastern coast of Turkey where a mythical Troy would have been. There were people in those regions, they had cities and palaces and infrastructures. We know they were traveling the Mediterranean, trading and socializing with others in the region. We know all of that for a fact. We have loads of evidence, textual, anthropological, archaeological. We have written records. We have the palaces. We have graves. We have art. So just in that sense alone, the idea of Troy is completely different. It's like what Flint was saying on our conversation episode, working from the known, all the archaeological evidence for the Bronze Age Mediterranean, and finding the unknown through that. But the easiest answer for why we have none of that for Atlantis is exactly what all the theorists say. Well, if Atlantis was lost, then we wouldn't have it unless we found Atlantis, would we? Well, sure, except for one glaring issue. If we're believing Plato about Atlantis, we have to believe Plato about Athens, too. And we do indeed have Athens. I've been there. (laughs) Again, as Flint went into in our conversation episode from Friday, we know what was in Athens 9,000 years before Plato, and it was basically nothing. And even if we adjust the date, as some theorists like to do, and make it much more recent, maybe 4,000 years before Plato, there's still nothing resembling the Athens of Plato's story. Even the Bronze Age, another few thousand years later, we have Athens, and there's a settlement there, maybe a palace even, but still the archaeology doesn't check out. Nothing fits because it isn't supposed to fit. Plato made it up. Learning that there was a prehistoric ancient Athens at war with Atlantis in the story, the original story, is one of the things that really did it for me. I couldn't believe that I'd never heard that before, that everyone who talks about Atlantis as myth or reality just casually forgets that there's this glaringly obvious reason why history cannot fit the narrative. But then, that's what makes so much of the belief in Atlantis a conspiracy theory. It's where the pseudo-archaeology comes in. They're trying to prove the point they've already decided exists, so it's easiest to ignore what doesn't fit your narrative, to pretend it's not there at all. And just to cap it off, yes, Troy has been found, or what we have determined can be called Troy, but that doesn't mean there was a Trojan War. We haven't found any evidence of proof of the war, just like we haven't found any evidence of an actual labyrinth on Crete, even though we have the palace at Knossos. And yet again, those are still myths, whereas Atlantis is, quite unfortunately, not. Atlantis, as this prehistoric lost world, only appears in Plato, and only in the Timaeus and the Critias. There are no stories or myths or history that interact with it. There are, simply... No other real references to Atlantis as a historical or mythical location, at all, from anywhere or any time period in the ancient world. There's nothing. So, if it's not a myth and it's not history, which we'll get into more later, then what is it? (laughs) 
Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Atlantis isn't a myth or history. Atlantis is an allegory. Atlantis is an allegory, a thought experiment, and a philosophical one at that. An allegory is defined as a story, poem, or picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral or political one. That's what Atlantis is. Of course, one of the first pieces of evidence that Atlantis isn't a myth or history should be the fact that it was written by Plato, a philosopher who didn't write myths or history, but unfortunately, that's often ignored, or people say that Plato, in this case, was writing about a historical story. But why would he do that, if that wasn't something he did? Why would this be the one real story amongst a host of philosophical writings that use fictional allegories as their plot devices? Plato used allegory and narrative storytelling through the voices of real, often long-dead, people in his dialogues, often as a way to make his philosophical points. It served as a way to explore theories and ideas within the context of a story he'd created. 
That's why the story of Atlantis isn't focused on any kind of heroic adventure, any slaying of mythical monsters, or even, say, the wrath of a hero like Achilles. It is concerned only with these two ancient civilizations who each serve as examples of opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to rulership and what happens from that rule. It's an examination on what is the ideal way of leading societies and what are the harms of the alternative. What we've lost is likely a more detailed examination on how those ideas behaved during wartime, but what we have is enough to show that it was, simply, an allegory examining those theories on how best to run a city. In the story, Athens is the ideal society, not Atlantis, as much as it's depicted as a kind of perfect utopia now. It was literally invented to be the bad guy. Isn't that wild? (laughs) This version of prehistoric Athens is not meant to be taken as a real story, a myth, or history. It is Plato examining what he considers to be the most important in a so-called ideal society. People each serving a specific role, these roles working in tandem, the society ruling itself without a king, and adhering to a set and specific number of citizens at any given time, whose blood remains pure. Of course, that's where we get into the inklings of one of Plato's major flaws. An interest in eugenics. The point is this Athens is Plato's ideal, and it serves as a direct contrast to his invented Athens, an ancient society that began wonderfully, began by the gods, was exceedingly wealthy, controlled their own people with an iron fist, (laughs) ruled by kings. But because the kings have this absolute power, they can be corrupted. Some of the last lines of the Critias describing Atlantis are, quote, By such reflections and by the continuance in them of a divine nature, the qualities which we have described grew and increased among them. But when the divine portion began to fade away and became diluted too often and too much with the mortal admixture and the human nature got the upper hand, they then, being unable to bear their fortune, behaved unseemly and to him who had an eye to see, grew visibly debased, for they were losing the fairest of their precious gifts. But to those who had no eye to see the true happiness, they appeared glorious and blessed at the very time when they were full of avarice and unrighteous power. The bit we're really looking at here is, when the divine portion began to fade away and became diluted too often and too much with the mortal admixture. The idea is that the divine nature that Poseidon had given them, as the original godly father of these people, became too mixed with standard humanity, and thus they became tainted. The kings descended into tyranny. Meanwhile, because Athens had kept their population tightly controlled... They didn't. Plato's interest in eugenics isn't the point, but it is telling, given where the serious belief in Atlantis has gone over the past hundred years or so. Somehow, Plato's example of a tyrannical society whose blood became impure when it mixed with mere mortals has become the ideal utopian society for people who believe in pure bloodlines. It's as contradictory as it is dark and disturbing. Now, the bits of the Critias dialogue that are lost, what would have come after this note about impurities, would have described the war with Athens. 
We know this happened in Plato's story because it's mentioned in the teaser in the Timaeus. The destruction of the island followed, and the Athenian warrior class went with it, caused by the gods through a major earthquake and flood. But what we know first is that Athens won this epic war, even though they had considerably fewer warriors and citizens. That, too, is the allegory at play. Atlantis had a way, way bigger military force, but the ideal Athenian society defeated them all the same because of everything they'd done to make themselves ideal. That is the point Plato is trying to make. Much like his other dialogues, his philosophical writings in general, Plato invented a story to make this point. It's just that, somehow, this one story gets promoted or understood to be real and historical, whereas all of the other ones get a pass as fictions. In fact, Plato's habit of playing around with his storytelling goes beyond just the use of allegory. In the Timaeus and the Critias, he often forms his points in a way where you get the idea that he's having a laugh with it all, that he's presenting an idea that is, on its face, unbelievable, and that's kind of the point. It's almost comedically untrue, and that was Plato's intention. That the story of Atlantis as it's presented in Plato's Critias is entertaining and almost comedic in its telling is pretty evident when you read it, provided you're coming at it from a historical mindset. Translation helps, too, because the old one I read in detail just now and last week is dry enough that you can miss what's behind Plato's words. Because I was reading so much of it, I had to go with that public domain translation. But in reading through a more recent translation, only from the last 10 years or so, by Stephen P. Kershaw, you can get a better sense of Plato's intent. The book is in the episode's description, and it's pretty good all around. Plato's use of wordplay overall contributes to how he intended his allegory to make his point. You know, in The Republic, he even talks about making up stories and presenting them as history in order to help the audience believe your point. Like, he gave the game away. So, if you're Plato and you want to tell this story in a way that's going to be accessible to your audience, without it being so recent as to be distracting in its contradiction to known history, you're going to invent a world that is so far back in time that no one will question why there's no sign of it now, where the only records exist in the mysterious region to the south, Egypt, a place even the Greeks were intrigued by, since their history went so much further back in time than the Greek where there were pyramids that had been around for as long as any Greek had been visiting. Who better to hold the key to this story? You'll position your story so that it's coming, if third-hand, through the voice of a man like Solon, who was considered one of the wisest sages of Athens during his time, and who had traveled to Egypt. Come up with a connection between your main character, Critias, and the character originally telling the story, Solon, that is both far enough in the past that you have a reason for why none of it can now be verified, while still being legitimate, like the wise Athenian statesmen of the past. 
keep with a lighthearted intro. Tell your audience that the reason all this knowledge and history was lost, even though Athens remained, is that... Ugh, geez, what an unfortunate coincidence. The only people that survived all this time were illiterate people in the mountains. What do you know? They literally couldn't write it down. Ha ha, your audience will laugh. A convenient reason for a lack of record. This Plato is very clever, they'll think. Now, onto the ancient island being invented. You're telling the story of how hubris with a dash of impure blood caused the downfall of this ancient society, so you need a protagonist and an antagonist. Both you as the creator and your storyteller are famous Athenians, so obviously Athens is going to be your protagonist. Athens is the best, after all. So first you're going to lay out the good guys, the Athenians, and what makes them so ideal. You want to remind your audience that this is the Athens they know now, but so long ago they can suspend their disbelief that it is run so differently from the current Athens. Still, you want to drill home the Athens of it all, so you're going to mention the Acropolis Hill and the Temple of Athena. Really harp on this utopian Athens. You love your city so much, why not imagine it into a big, beautiful past? Tell everyone how perfect the system was, how great the people were. Make sure you mention Athena. Everyone loves Athena. Tell everyone how fertile the land was and how much more space they had back then for agriculture. But wait, don't just say that. You need to explain why the landmass has changed. Toss in some good geological science, erosion and the like. Make sure you sound super smart. You're a serious philosopher after all. Moving on, before you lay out the bad guys, you want to toss in a kind of nudge-nudge, wink-wink to your audience. Explain why all the names your audience is about to hear are names they'll recognize. Tell them that, yeah, it might seem unbelievable, sure, that all these names are Greek, but that doesn't make your story false. Nope, you've got an explanation. It's because these names have been translated. Twice. Your audience will have a little chuckle at this. Ha ha, how convenient. This will also help your audience accept that the story revolves around your own deities, a point that also helps ground it. Athena has Athens now, so it checks out that she'd have it back then, too. Once your audience has sufficiently appreciated your clever joke, you want to lay out the bad guys, the ones who are going to start out sounding great. They're children of gods, that makes them different enough from your audience and the history of the region so as to make them an other a group you can then easily demonize later in your story. Barbarians. You're going to want to over-describe the details here. Really paint a picture for your audience so they grow interested in your story and thus your eventual point. You'll draw on the regions you know, the circular settlements that exist all around the Mediterranean. You're going to put these bad guys in the location that is both accessible and not just beyond where ships sail, just beyond the bit that's impassable for its rough waters. If you put it there, it's close without being too close. It's at the edge of your known world. And toss in a reason for why the waters are impassable. It's because of what's about to happen to your island. You're going to want to make the story itself appealing and lay down the groundwork for what will be your island's downfall. So you're going to want to make them very, very rich. They're going to have loads of metals that Greece doesn't have. They're going to put it everywhere as though they're swimming in it. But still, they're humble. 
That's right. They're rich as anything, but they're so humble because at the beginning, they're godly and they're good. They're a virtuous people, those islanders. Now you want to transition to your philosophical point. The more power the kings have, the less honorable they are, the more tyrannical they become. Their extreme wealth is going to become an issue. Who saw that coming? Not the Atlanteans, but definitely your audience. They're going to become too proud, too tainted by hubris and mortality. As your audience very, very well knows, with that much power comes tyranny. Kings become tyrannical. Like I just did, Plato had a lot of fun writing this dialogue. He got to use his imagination just enough to invent this world to serve his point, while still grounding it very much in the world that he and his audience understood, that of classical Athens. Honestly, everything about Atlantis sounds like it was invented in classical Athens, even if you ignore it being by Plato. At least the Iliad and the Odyssey feel as though they're much older, even if they were only written down in the Archaic period. But Atlantis? Nah, it sounds like an imaginative and often tongue-in-cheek interpretation that's grounded in the reality of Plato's world. To cap it all off, at the very beginning of the Critias, before the story is being told, Plato basically pats himself on the back by having Critias talk about how it's easy to tell stories of the gods, but much more difficult to speak to stories of mere humans, which, of course, is what he's about to do. Still, even with all these details, you don't have to take my word for it that Plato clearly invented the idea of Atlantis. You might still be thinking, Plato could still be making the same point, and even still be tongue-in-cheek in his use of the story while referring to a real historical story of Atlantis, couldn't he? We'll dive into the historical evidence, or lack thereof, next week, including the time there was an incredibly destructive natural disaster that absolutely changed the face of the Mediterranean long, long before Plato's time, and why that still wasn't Atlantis. Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. I'm having a lot of fun with this. Kind of feels like I'm attacking everyone, but I feel like all of you are on my side. Anyway, I still think it's so fascinating. Thank you so much for listening. I know it's a lot just hearing in detail how something you probably thought you knew is actually something else entirely. It's it's a lot of just me debunking, for lack of a better word. But I personally find that part of it, how obvious it all is once you realize, to be the most interesting. We've all been so taken over by notions about Atlantis that were invented only in the last few hundred years that we have no idea what the truth of the story is, what actually existed in the ancient world. It's wild! On Friday, I speak with an archaeologist who looks at pseudo-archaeology. It's an utterly fascinating conversation and dives deeper into the dangers of pseudo-archaeology and how Atlantis got to be the way that it is. It is quite the story, honestly. Now, you might notice there aren't a ton of sources listed in the episode's description. Normally, I wouldn't feel the need to address this, but I know I'm going to get a lot of eager Atlantis hunters and deep believers who, if they made it this far, they probably didn't, I guess, are going to maybe want to hear. I don't know if anyone's immediately annoyed at me for coming at the story in this way, for not entertaining any notion of it being anything other than an allegorical story invented by Plato, but I know it's the right way to do it. 
But I want to clarify, I'm here to tell you the ancient source for Atlantis, to tell you about where the idea came from and why, and to examine what it means and what it does and does not mean for the wider ancient Mediterranean world. And there's only so much I can do in a podcast, so I would also encourage you to read up on the good, real, historical sources that talk about this. Basically, for the most part, I'm staying in the ancient world when talking about the story of Atlantis. That's why I've referred to the primary source, Plato's Timaeus and Critias, as well as a book I found very helpful and would recommend if you want to learn more, A Brief History of Atlantis, Plato's Ideal State by Stephen P. Kershaw. From what I found in my research, it comes at Atlantis from a historical and archaeological perspective and provides loads of helpful history and context. Highly recommend. There's so much in there, I've just scratched the surface. Just a taste of what Atlantis is and is not. I don't want to talk about the modern searches or theories for a lot of reasons. The simplest is that all of them are based on the idea that Plato is speaking truth. But when I read it and when I read commentary on it, it's so incredibly obvious to me that he was not even purporting to be telling a real story. It feels disingenuous to even entertain the idea that he was. The most obvious reason I don't want to entertain those theories is that every bit of real archaeology we have and every bit of textual evidence from the ancient world and every rational interpretation of the facts makes clear that Plato invented the story and thus there is no rational basis for looking at anything ever. But the most important reason I don't want to talk about those modern theories is that while some of the old theories from the 19th and even the 20th century might seem fun and quirky, Disney's Atlantis style, the concept itself has become problematic as hell. I've spoken of that, and I will in more detail next week. We're not going to cover the theories, they don't matter, but we will talk about why the search for Atlantis is problematic, why pseudo-archaeology is dangerous, and how it all comes down to some really dark and awful racism. It's all very interesting and mysterious, but if we entertain the conspiracy theories, we detract from real and important historical and archaeological study. We detract from the ancient civilizations that actually existed in the Mediterranean and all that they did. We give voice to a theory that is often used by racist conspiracists to promote white supremacy. Something, again, I will be talking about more. For all these reasons, I'm coming at the story from the ancient truth of it. Plato was a philosopher who used fiction to philosophize. It's really interesting and cool to think about, but it's not real. Thank you all for listening. You are all the best. I'm Liv and I love myths. The ones that interact with one another, that span centuries of oral storytelling. The real ones. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com.